0: Hello and welcome to the London Property Podcast, home of Super Prime. Today, we're in conversation with Elaine Halligan of The Parent Practice with some valuable advice. Good morning, Elaine, and uh, welcome to the London Property Podcast. Thanks, Fernanda. great to be here. And uh, we're going to talk about a, a few issues that uh, you and I feel might be interesting to our listeners. Um we're going to start with with how your story began. But I always feel that as a parent, if somebody had actually put me in teacher's training before I had children, I'd have such an advantage. But let's let's start with you and how it all began. Well, you're so right, aren't you? Because no one prepares us for parenting. You know, that no one prepares
1: us for the pitfalls. And we spend months learning how to prepare for the pregnancy and, and how to prepare for our baby. And we look at pain relief for the birth. But actually, no one stops to explain the reality of what it's like to be a parent. And and I think when you're sleep deprived, when you're stressed, when you're juggling work and all maybe challenging behavior, it's really difficult to kind of um, really be effective in this role. And the thing is, no one teaches us. No one teaches us it. Your baby doesn't come with a parenting manual. And I get a lot of clients saying to me, but isn't parenting instinctive? And I say, no, it's absolutely not instinctive. It's a deeply ingrained state based on the way you were brought up. So actually, you'll either replicate what your parents did, or or else you'll make a conscious decision to do something else. So yeah, parenting today is very different from what it was like uh, when we were growing up for Naz.
0: Yes, no, definitely. I I, I always say, you know, in some countries, you you have to have a license to to buy a dog, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, we, we, we literally, when, when I listen to some of the teachers, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm stuck at what to do next, I just feel like if I knew what I know now, I would have definitely done like a little crash course in, in, in teaching. And, 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 and carry on. No, no, that, that, that's it. I was just saying that, you know, if, if, if I could do a crash course on teaching before every stage, you know, so you've got sort of the zero to five and then the five to 10, and then, God forbid, I'm not past 12 yet, but I guess from 12 to 18. My my father always used to say, the bigger the kids, the bigger the problems.
1: So look, you've hit on a really big issue, isn't it? Which is why, why aren't parenting skills the kind of the most, the most commonplace thing in the world? Why don't people go running off to their parenting classes like they do their NCT classes? And I think the idea is there may still be a little bit of stigma. There may still be a little bit of um, fear that by going to a parenting class, you're admitting failure. But I've got to be really honest with you here. I have found parenting one of the hardest jobs I have ever done. And I wonder if your listeners will recognize this. When I had my firstborn, Sam, I didn't recognize myself. I kind of turned into a screaming banshee. And I started doing all these things. I repeated instructions because he wouldn't listen. I nagged him. I reminded. What else did I do? I, I cajoled. I definitely bribed because I just didn't know how to get him out of the house in the morning. And eventually um, I found myself punishing and just doing things that I deeply regretted because I just didn't know how to bring out the best in my little boy. And and the story is, and and this is how the parent practice was set up with my former business partner, Melissa Hood, is that we, we came into this work with challenging children. And by goodness, my son was challenging. And for Naz, if I share with you, but they, by the age of seven, he had been excluded from his third school in so many years. Wow. So I had a little lad who was literally written off in society at the age of seven. And he was labeled naughty, stupid, silly. And he got into all sorts of mischief at school. He got into mischief at home, but school was anxiety inducing. And we just didn't know what was going on for this little lad. And, you know, it took us a long time to work out that part of it was his temperament. And I have a little boy. I had a little boy who's very intense, really sensitive and extremely impulsive. So he had no self-control, no pause button. And and the behavior that he was exhibiting at school actually was all because of um, his neurodiversity. He learned differently. And I just don't think we're very good as a society embracing difference. Um, above average IQ, I think it was 132, which is phenomenal, but couldn't read or write. Can you imagine what it's like going to school, being asked to read and write and not being able to do it? It's like us going into work and being told we've got to talk in Japanese. So once we found out that he was dyslexic, although we had loads of labels, Um, I don't know whether you know any of these three letter abbreviations, but the day he was diagnosed with PDA, I came home and cried. Have you heard of that?
0: I have not. That's a new one. What is that one?
1: PDA. So it's not public displays of affection. (laughs) It's pathological demand avoidance. Okay. It's a subset of autistic spectrum condition. It means he was really, really non-compliant. They then said, oh, I think he's oppositionally defiant disordered. He's got a bit of sensory integration dysfunction. He may have developmental coordination disorder, which is the new term for dyspraxia. And before we knew it for nas we had a little boy who is like a melting pot of alphabet labels. Who was a genius? No, no, I wouldn't say absolutely not a genius He had an IQ level that was high, but he was a dyslexic, severely dyslexic. He's not a genius, but what he is, is a problem solver. So what's fascinating is that we couldn't base, and I'm going to use the word success tentatively, yeah—because because success means different things to different people. We could not base success on academic attainment. That was clear, because he was a different learner. But what we could do was basis success based on his character education yeah what skills what attributes what traits could he use in life to make him feel worthy and to build up his self-esteem and once we discovered that he had an incredible attention to detail he was adhd as well which means that you know that that ferrari brain but with bicycle brakes and once you start to understand your child's educational needs and their temperament then the magic starts to happen. So he's now 25, uh, still struggles with literacy. It's not a problem. If you struggle with literacy now, we live in the technological age, which is a dream come true for kids like this. They have voice recognition. And actually, I have to share with you that he's never written an exam in his life. Throughout his whole education, he's had a reader and a scribe And he's learned most things visually through YouTube and is now running a classic car business and several businesses dealing in repositioning classic cars across the world. Brilliant. So, you know, we need to celebrate the child we've got, not the child we want them to be. And I think that's a really big issue for parents when their children may not be reaching their targets. You need to stop. You need to press a pause button and work out where your child's strengths are build up their self-esteem and when they feel good about themselves then they can accept their weaknesses without it lowering their self-worth and that's the story of Sam and how I came into being a parenting coach.
0: So how would you advise parents because as you say we we all get so frustrated and you know we don't understand why couldn't you learn you know your times tables like everybody else and why are you not on grade so and so in reading and the other ones are and so on how, how do you uh, advise parents in, in starting to recognize and, and holding themselves back from damaging their child's self-esteem by telling them that they're bad and actually recognize that they need to pay attention to their child in a different way to bring out the best in them and, and, and recognize these things? How, how, do they, how do you start as a parent? That is such a good question. And I've got to put
1: my hand up and say it, it took me the best part of eight years to truly understand, Sam, because we did not get that behavior. So so what I encourage my clients to do is always be curious. There's always a reason for behavior. And I'm going to make this really simple as possible, but most behavior is generated by feelings and emotions. And if your child, I'll give you an example, is sitting at the homework table and saying, this is boring. Do you ever get that? A child going, it's really boring. Boring is usually a code word for actually I'm finding this quite hard. Right. So whenever your child is being a problem in your eyes, maybe they're procrastinating. They're not getting down to the homework. They're not listening to you. They're distractible. They're fidgety. They're moving all the time to learn. Your child may not be being a problem, but they may be having a problem. So you need to be kind of detectives. You need to be really curious about behavior. And I think what really helps is to come at it from the premise that all children actually want to be successful. All children actually want to do the right thing. They want to get the affirmation. They want to get the acknowledgement from adults around them. And when they choose the wrong behavior what you may call a misbehavior, there's always a reason. And where we go wrong as parents is this, we wanna correct that behavior instantly. And that never works. Because if a child is feeling overwhelmed, anxiety, anger, frustration, disappointed, when we try and tell them, no, you shouldn't be feeling that way and don't talk to me like that, that's disrespectful, We absolutely miss the opportunity to connect and we can't correct the behavior until we connect. And everything about positive parenting is about building that relationship of connection and communication. And I think we need to be taught how to communicate more effectively with our kids. Which brings in patience. Uh, Patience. We we need patience, you mean?
0: Yes, because most people, I think they get so impatient so quickly because they, 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 they just run out of what do I do next?
1: Because we haven't got a toolkit for NARS. We don't have a toolkit. And if yeah. we don't have a toolkit of positive parenting skills, our button will be pressed frequently. And actually, what's fascinating is that over the last 12 months, parents are spending more time at the homework table, at the homeschooling table with their kids than ever before. Um, my business at the parent practice has just exploded. Because what's happening is parents are now having that curiosity. They're now seeing their children, witnessing it firsthand, maybe how inattentive they are, or maybe how challenging they find certain work. And therefore, they're becoming these detectives, and they're stopping, and they're they're kind of thinking, what's going on here? So in order to be patient and press what I call the pause button, yeah, the big, fat, red pause button, (laughs) You need to press it because if you don't press it, you're going to do or say something you'll deeply regret. So in order to press that pause button, you need to know how to stay calm. You need the skills to know um, that your reaction to your children's behavior is driven by your emotions. It's not per se their behavior that causes you to react like that. It's our emotions and beliefs. And I think what I'm finding more and more now is that parents are worried. We're really worried about the future for our children. If we're not worried about mental health, we're worried about the exams, you know, how are they going to get into the university of choice um, as a young adult? And we worry about things it's like an economic anxiety for us. Does that make sense? Where the, the stakes are high. We want our children to get into adult life and, and be able to cope for themselves and be confident and competent. And if we fear that that's at risk, then the stakes are high. We get anxious and it's really difficult for us to be patient. So it's a big question you've asked. There's so many components to it. But I think one of the biggest components is is knowing what to do in the moment.
0: I was reading somewhere recently that children up to the age of about, well, until about puberty are much more driven by their subconscious than by their conscious thoughts. So actually, it is a lot of what they do, they can't explain to themselves in the beginning, because it's all about how they're feeling. Whereas then they start judging themselves when they get closer to puberty, like, you know, I'm too tall, I'm too thin, I'm too thick, you know, I'm not pretty enough. So I guess the the anxiety of parenting in the beginning is compounded by the fact that you're actually also dealing with someone's subconscious. So the communication is, is on a level that you you don't really know anything about yourself or anything about them and they don't know about themselves. So, you know, all this business of just stopping and slowing down and listening and looking becomes so relevant. I mean, if you could tell to somebody, you have just had a baby, read this, study that, you know, before they even start crawling, what would you, what would you tell them? Oh God, get the parent practice manual, <laughs> read, yeah. read my book, my child's different, you know,
1: don't go into it blindfolded. But just to come back to your point about the, the teenagers and their subconscious, and I think it's more to do with the way their brain works actually, rather than conscious and subconscious. But but I, I think I get where you're going with this is that they're not fully aware of how they're reacting. And the reason for that is this, there's two parts of the brain. There's the um, forehead here. I'm showing you on the screen, which is the prefrontal cortex. That's the cool brain. That's like the air traffic control system. Um, We want our teenagers to use their prefrontal cortex. They can't. Because if you put your fingers in your ears, the bit in between is what's called the amygdala or the limbic system. And what you're describing is that teenagers work really a lot in the limbic system. They are hugely emotional they misinterpret signs. So you may say to your son or daughter, if they're a teenager, honey, have you done your homework? And they'll immediately see that as a hostile question and go, will you please get off my back? Yeah. (laughs) And and so they're always operating in this limbic system. So so they they may not be fully conscious of how they're coming across, but this is the period of our lives where, you know, our teenagers separate from us. We start to um, feel not needed. And and that's a real um, emotional issue, especially for mums when they start to separate from us. And as they live in their limbic system, everything is about self-worth and self-esteem. Am I okay? Am I good enough? Do I have my tribe? Do I look good like this? Am I popular? Am I liked? It goes on and on and on. So the biggest thing parents can do at home not just in the teenage years, but throughout the whole childhood years, but the teenage years are particularly an issue. It's where self-esteem can often drop. And that is where we need to spend more time focusing on what our teens get right rather than focusing on what they get wrong. And here's the thing. We have a negativity bias. You go into your teenager's bedroom. What do you see? You see a floor drobe on the floor, you immediately go for them and go, for goodness sake, why can't you just keep a tidy bedroom, clear your clothes up? What am I, your slave? But they actually may have made their bed. Their books may be on the bookshelf. Their curtains or blinds may be open, but we don't notice any of that because we go straight to the behaviour that we think needs correcting. Does that make sense? So inadvertently, we can start spending more time commenting on the stuff we don't like and ignoring actually the stuff they're getting right.
0: Well, I went to one of your parenting classes uh, a few years back now, (laughs) a little gold book that I had afterwards, Ah. where at the end of the day, we used to sit down and I I have to admit, I I didn't stay with it. And I wish I had, because it would be a really nice thing to, to keep. But they used to really look forward to coming to sit with me to see all the things that they did right that day that we were going to write them there. Like, well done for not losing your temper today. And well done for doing your shoelaces up before going to, to school rather than, you know, you did get to school half an hour late. So it, it does make a difference, as you say, because they are driven to want to please. Absolutely. So if we actually train ourselves in trying to be that positive reinforcement rather than the negative then you know you can get uh, you can get a lot more out of your 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 children and you know as you say this society anxiety where you know at the age of 7 and 8 we you, we need them to understand comprehension and inference and if they don't they're going to be the dummy because who didn't get into the waiting list with the other thousand people who are competing for the three spaces you know it's like it's just mental isn't it what what we're expecting so what- Yeah, it is mental. And what you've
1: just highlighted beautifully there is the power of our language, the power of descriptive praise. What you're talking about is a skill called descriptive praise, where we don't do the evaluative praise of good girl, good boy. You're amazing. You're a superstar. I'm so proud of you. It's not the worst thing you can say, but it doesn't actually feed their soul. So if you find yourself saying, I'm proud of you, just tweak that. Just say you guys should feel proud of yourself. Yeah. The fact that you've got into the netball team, into the first team, is testament to all the dedication and hard work you've put in. Good for you. You should feel proud of yourself. And, and as we write all these praises in what you call the golden book, can I tell you Fanaz, you can get the books out again for your teenagers. Now, you're not going to read it to them at bedtime. <laughs> they definitely will tell you to. <laughs> they definitely will tell you where to get lost. Um, but why I encourage parents of teenagers to write positive affirmations for their teens in the golden book, it's to help you get back into the habit of looking for all the good things your teens do. And then what you do is this, you just say to your teenager, honey, I'm just going to start that golden book that we did, you know, when you were at primary school, because I realize I've got into some kind of negative habits. So I'm just going to write in the golden book, just all the things that I notice that you do well, the progress you're making and everything. I'm going to leave the book just on the side table in the kitchen. You're welcome to have a look at it. I promise you, they'll look at it. They may not come to you and say, oh, mom, thanks for writing in the book. But I promise you, they'll look at it. And it helps you get into a good habit. They get this overwhelming sense that you care. You care because that's a lot of what teenagers throw back at us. You don't care, you don't understand, and you don't get it. So when they see us spending time commenting on all the good attributes, the qualities they have, the characteristics they have, they feel very warm and affirmed. And even though they may not show it, I promise you it's all going in.
0: Yeah, who doesn't like to be praised? Yeah. (laughs) And um, so on the subject of teenagers, which is not my forte, thankfully, yet, um, I guess a lot of us feel that this whole digital overload is going to have an effect on them that mm. none of us are aware of you know mm. the same way that you know historically people uh, used uh, certain drugs to to uh, help in anxiety or you know the things that people didn't think were detrimental and then they were you know we're all battling with our children thinking personally I think oh my god it, you know if he spends five hours a day looking at screens he's going to get addicted to them and then he'll never be able to come off them and by the time he's 30 he'll have no social skills and all he want to do is sit in front of the screen what do I do so there's a lot of anxiety about all of this and how 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 would you it's a really big question this but the first thing I'd say is let's not be hypocritical here yeah
1: how how much time are we spending on screens just now And For some reason, we think our children's use of screen time is different from our own. Let me tell you, it's not. There are many, many adults who are now, um, I'm not going to use the word addiction lightly, but who would struggle to get off screens. And and it's a question of saying, well, our children are using screens now uh, for different things. And it's all now about quality, not quantity. So they're using screens for education. If it wasn't for screens, what would we have done over the last year? They're using screens for socializing. If it wasn't for WhatsApp, TikTok, and whatever else they're using, how would they have kept in touch with their friends? And the third thing is they're using screens for guilty pleasure. That's the gaming. But for Naz, I use screens for guilty pleasure as well. So whether it's the Netflix series or whatever, or a box set of something, we're using screens just as much as the children. It's just that we kind of, think that it's okay for us to be on a screen 10 hours a day. I don't know about you, but I couldn't have operated my business without technology. So that's the first thing to say is just just be aware that, that screens are here to stay. And the answer to this always, and it's almost everything I teach at the parent practice, it's about balance. We're not going to get rid of screens, but it is about balance. So the question parents need to ask themselves is what are your children missing out on? So accept that if if they're in the late primary school years, they'll be spending several hours a day on screens during homeschooling. You need to accept that. And then we look at what else they need to do in the day. If they need to get their physical exercise in, have dinner, have a bath. Actually, there's not much time left for downtime. And so it's a question of parents working out, you know, what is permissible? And and, and what I can say is that right through to the early teen years, you really do have to have clear boundaries and rules because the more inconsistent you are, the more permissive and less, say, fair, it it can easily be the case at a weekend that before you know it, your child's had several hours on screen time, and then you're wondering why the siblings are fighting and why the harmony at home has gone out the window. So, So definitely, definitely have rules and boundaries but don't be coercive with screens. It's all about connection and communication and it's all about teaching our children to be good digital citizens because screens are here to stay. I embrace screens, I love technology, but as with everything, it's gotta be a question of balance. And that's for you as a parent to work out what your values are and where the balance is. So if you insist that your child has half an hour to an hour exercise every day after school, before you know it for us, there's actually not much time to have screen time.
0: So that's, that, that's where most of the guilt comes from, isn't it? It's for, from our own inability to be consistent. So we slip up and then we start screaming and shouting at them saying, oh, why didn't you do this and that and the other? Whereas actually children that have rules to follow are actually a lot more confident, and and a lot more, uh, you know they they know how to regulate themselves because they know what's expected of them.
1: I love that, and that's absolutely right, isn't it? Rules are your best friends. We need to teach our children good habits and behaviors. How do we do that? We do that by letting them know our values, and we embed our values in rules. So I, I coach clients and I just say, rules are your best friends. The reason your children are usually successful at school it's because the rules are clear, and they're consistent. So, look, um, I have yet to meet a family who don't struggle with a, with a lack. You know, they all struggle with lack of consistency, and they all struggle at times with a lack of a united front. So, it's about planning time. It's about mums, dads, and um, whatever your family looks like, getting together and just brainstorming what it is you want to happen. Get clarity on that you know, think of the end in mind, then communicate it to children, get their input, write down the rules, definitely write down the rules. Why do I say that, do you think? So that you can keep to them yourself. Yeah, you don't forget them. It's so easy to forget them. Yeah, in the moment. So write down the rules. Little children, take pictures of them doing the right thing. And absolutely, rules are your best friends, and they are a way to reduce the misbehavior happening. Because most people go, oh my God, my, my child's doing X, Y, and Z. And I'll just say a very simple question to them. What's the rule? And they'll go, oh, I don't think we have a rule. (laughs) Okay, so if you don't have a rule, if you allowed your child to have five hours of TV one weekend and then suddenly go, right, we're having a complete detox, they'll be confused. And so just help them be successful by letting them know what they can do. And, And as I say that, it all sounds very simple, doesn't it? And there's nothing about positive parenting that's rocket science. But the hardest bit is that our buttons get pressed and emotions get in the way. So being self-aware, knowing how to look after ourselves, because we can't dip our, into the toolkit of skills unless we feel you know, good about ourselves. So I always say, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. Make sure that you're in a good place looking after yourself in order to manage Family life, work life, whatever else is going on for you.
0: We can go on talking forever about this subject. We probably need to <laughs> divide it up into different podcasts. But uh before finishing off, uh I think one of the challenges in, in in parenting is that you both come from different upbringings as parents. And then you believe that, you know, most of the time, unless, as you said in the beginning, you do everything you can to do the opposite of what happened to you as a child, but you believe that what you where you come from is absolutely right. And then he believes where he comes from is absolutely right. And then there's that battle of my way versus your way, which is, I think a a struggle that causes a lot of this uncertainty for the children. And, you know, it goes back again to that parent training. And I think that, you know, your, your uh, organization uh, has these tools for people. And as you say, you've got this handbook, but, How often would you say that parents together and individually should revisit these skills that they need to update? Is it is it is it something that changes, uh, you know, uh, from the age period of the children? So from zero to five, update yourself on what you should be doing from five to 10, from 10 to 15, et cetera. What would you what would you advise? (laughs) I'm smiling at that question for because I think you were a client of mine eight years ago.
1: I may have got that wrong. When yeah, you had, yeah, when you had little And, oh, my goodness, our children go through different ages and stages of development. And no sooner do you tackle one thing than another issue will come up. So, actually, um, I've been in business now for 12 years. And I am still coaching clients who have young adult children who were with me 12 years ago. Now, now you may say, oh, gosh, does that mean the skills don't work? It's not that. It's just that you need a parenting MOT because right. different challenges will come up. Your children will encounter, I guarantee it, it doesn't matter what age your child, they will encounter friendship difficulties at some point in their lives. They will encounter disappointment at some point in their lives. And, and you know the skills. If you've done the work with us, you know the skills. But just because you've had 10 sessions at the gym doesn't give you abs like Elle McPherson. So just doing 10 parenting classes doesn't mean to say that you're going to be the expert at it. And so it needs practice and there's a reason the business is called the parent practice. It needs practice. Okay. And so I find a lot of my clients will come annually for what I call a parenting MOT. And they're the clients who are open-minded, who are willing to learn, who are honest and put their hands up and just say I haven't cracked this parenting job yet. And they're the clients who actually bringing up their children is the most important thing in the world for them. This is the most important job they'll ever do. And they invest time and money and energy into making sure that they can get their children into adult life feeling competent, competent and happy. And they're the kind of three things that parents want. So, yeah, I would encourage everyone to think of it like um, a bi-yearly visit to the dentist. Yeah, because yeah. there isn't a more important job in this world, I don't think, if you're privileged to be a mother or father. It, it, it's a huge honour and it's a big job. And that role is probably more complicated than it's ever been. But that's not to
0: put a negative spin on it. But somebody once told me that parenting is the hardest job in the world with almost no recognition. (laughs) And I think the recognition for me anyway, with with parenting came once I had my own kids and I was like, Oh wow. So you guys were actually did a really good job. And actually
1: it's one of the hardest roles as a mother and a father that you will ever play. You need so many skills. And I think just be honest with yourselves that give up the perils of perfectionism here. This is not about being perfect. It's about being good enough but it's about just filling up that toolkit to make sure that you can do the best job that you can do with the skills and the resources you've got.
0: Thank you very much. That was really, really enjoyable and informative and we'll definitely be back to revisit this. Thank you, Elaine. Thanks for inviting me. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the London Property Podcast, home of Super Prime. For more informative and educational content, visit us at londonproperty.co.uk.